We continue our conversation today with Robert Party, discussing the profound transformative experience of caregiving. Today, Robert will share his journey through grief after the loss of his wife, Desiree, who was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 31. We discuss the difficulty of losing one's identity as a caregiver and how to move forward and find purpose. I hope you'll tune in. This episode of Saint Someone is sponsored by Alska. If you're a caregiver, you know how difficult it is to keep everyone on the same page. With the Alska Connected Caregiving Portal, you can securely store and share medical, legal, and financial documents, keep track of schedules and appointments, and share updates. The Ask a Care Guide helpline puts a care concierge at your fingertips to help you find resources in your area to guide you on your caregiving journey. If you're experiencing additional challenges like living transitions or a health crisis, one-on-one virtual sessions with experts are also available. You can learn more and create an account at alska.com. That's A-L-S-K-A dot com. Hello, everyone. Uh, Today we are again talking to Robert Party. So this is uh, episode two of our interview with him. Last time we talked about his amazing journey as a caregiver for his wife, Desiree, and kind of the unique um, situation that he was in. So if you haven't listened to that yet, um, definitely go go back and it will definitely be worth um, your time. And so Robert, we're so glad to have you back with us today. No, I'm really happy to be back. Oh. Thank you so much. So we ended our last conversation, you know, touching on grief and talking about how difficult it is, you know, when you're a caregiver for a a period of time and that becomes so much a part of your life, how you transition out of that. And that's something that caregivers don't often anticipate or expect to be dealing with. It's a little bit of an identity crisis in a way. Um, so, and I know you've had a remarkable journey. So how, um, first of all, starting with the grief, I mean, what, what things did you find were most helpful when, uh, when Desiree passed? Well, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, something you alluded to at the very beginning of, you know, being an identity crisis, I, I believe all caregivers suffer this, but I was unaware of how much my life had been tied to the caregiving because it just became normal. Mm-hmm. And as after she passed, there was a big emptiness of what do I do? Who am I? Um, what's my purpose? Because taking care of her was so purposeful. And it's not even taking care of her because I was supporting her. She was she was still doing. So, yes, I was taking care of her, but I was supporting her journey or I was supporting her through her journey. And whatever the outcome was going to be, I had to sort of surrender to. But when I needed to turn back to myself, it had become so unfamiliar to think about me alone because when I would turn inside as a caregiver I was turning inside to manage the the emotions that I was going through or the situations that were happening so I could be of a better benefit for her but after she passed I have to say there was a period of time that I, I truly was numb to mm. a lot of things. And there wasn't a one specific action I took. Um, one thing I, I would say, which was, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me how it all happened. Um, she was a doctor at New York Hospital and they asked me if I would want to host a memorial. And I hadn't really thought about it. And I said, yeah, that would be nice. And so 
they said, well, when would you like to host it? And I said, sooner than rather than later. She passed away in September 2009. And they said, well, the only date we have available in 2009 that could host the right number of people is in October. And I said, whatever the date is, it's fine. And it just happened to be our 20th wedding anniversary. Oh. And it, it just felt so right. But the moment the memorial finished and it's interesting because it wasn't a memorial i wound up that's where i emerged as life coach even though let's say i wound up i was her life coach Mm -hmm. but i basically gave a lesson on living life Mm -hmm. and people came up to me afterwards and they're like oh my god you know you what you said everything um let's go for a drink and then i'm packing my bag up it was a rainy horrible night i turn around and the room was empty. Mm. And I said to myself at that moment, I said, there's no reason for me to continue to live. I've done everything I should and I'm alone. Mm. And I was thinking in my mind as I was walking back that night in the rain to my apartment building, you know, maybe, maybe I just should end my life. And I arrived at my apartment building and there was a body in front of the door. Now, how uh, you, you talk about the, the coincidences of things. Um, a girl had thrown herself out of the 16th floor because mm-hmm. um, her dad had a heart attack and he, he died in front of her. Mm-hmm. And I looked at all that and I said, well, wait a minute, this is, this is not what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. And I was able to live a certain way with Desiree where I learned a lot of, or I put to use a lot of skills I had learned as as a child, but I learned a lot about resilience. And so what I found was to start to include in small, small steps, things that were just mine to rebuild my identity. A very funny story, we used to eat Indian food all the time. And about six months after Desiree had Um, passed away friends were like you know look you haven't been out let's go out we'll go out for Indian food and I said you know what I actually don't like it Mm. I wasn't even aware that I didn't like it because I was just sort of doing Mm. and I realized a lot of the recovery process is to start to pick things and put things back into let's say a a puzzle Mm -hmm. of what you like what you want, your desires, because the the grieving process to me, a lot of what the grieving process is about is letting go of expectations of how your life should have been. Mm-hmm. And so when I found things to hold on to, oh, you know what, I really, I like uh, painting, let's say, for example, I, I, f- I found that I really was a runner. Um, I didn't know how much I loved running until I started running for the enjoyment of it and not the stress relief. Mm-hmm. And that, that was something that it was a small little thing, but then there's something to look forward to mm-hmm. because the thing is we never, we never let go of the loss, the whole idea of move on, get over and all of that. It is part of us. And uh, I say all the time, it's a very strange phrase, but I always say I'm beautifully scarred for having loved and lost my wife. The scar comes from the loss, but it was it was beautiful to have her in my life at the time. But when you first confront the loss, th- those things are very difficult to say to yourself because there's 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 anger and there's the anger of losing someone. It, for me, what's under really underneath that is your life has been upheavaled. So of course you miss the person you love, if we're talking about a person, but there's, there's so many different grief, grief processes. Mm-hmm. But when there's that loss, so much of it has to do, like you said, with identity. Mm-hmm. And to start to accept the grieving process, because they talk about the stages the stages are these emotional stages, but you have to understand that 
you're not trying to rebuild the life you had. You're trying to take pieces of it to go forward. Mm. And that's the grief work. In, in my opinion, that's the real grief work. And for me, what I found is starting to find small things that I enjoy doing. And it feels very inauthentic as a caregiver, I think, because we tend to not self-care when we're caregiving or we feel um, that it's selfish or we feel guilty when we do something uh, that is just for us because we, we need that break. But if you think about it, you have to take that break to be able to take care of somebody. And it doesn't mean you have to go for a three-day weekend somewhere and and leave the person it could be something small but we're not used to doing that so part of the rebuilding process is giving us permission to look for things that we enjoy that's so true and i really like how you phrased it that you know your life is never going to be completely the same and taking parts of that and, and moving forward with them. I mean, I think that's a, a very true and, and beautiful way to put that because a lot of people, especially around somebody who's grieving, want them to get back to normal. You know, they want everything to kind of go back. When are you going to be okay? When are you going to go back to work? You know, back to normal, back to your old self, all of these things, and not realizing that that person is never going to be who they were before because on this journey things happen to all of us that change who we are and it's not a terrible thing no in fact what what you said an image came to my mind that i think is so so important i grew up in an italian american household and i was lucky enough to have known three of my great grandparents I, I remember them because they all died in their hundreds and um, I was around five or six or seven. I can't remember. But they had the tradition of wearing a black band on their arm when someone passed away. And it was a signal in a way to openly speak about grief. Mm-hmm. Now, today, like you said, everyone's waiting for you to get back to normal also because no one wants to, conf- they don't know what to do because our, our nature is we want to fix the person. When you're a caregiver, you want to fix the person. When you see someone in grief or in pain, you, you want to help them through it and just get over it as soon as possible. And the thing is, it, like, like I said before, and I always picture a mosaic, and I think it's also having lived in, in Rome, but you know, the ancient mosaics, they're all so beautiful, but all those stones were cut by hand and each stone is imperfect. And so the the grief, the loss, that's an imperfect stone in something we're building that will be beautiful once we express ourselves. And so pressure from society to get back to normal is, is not for you, it's not for the person that's grieving, it's actually for the people around you. My mom, when my wife passed away, she wanted me to grieve like she grieved for my dad. And we actually were somewhat distant during it because she didn't understand me going out and doing things and trying to also, there was an article about my wife in the New York Times, and I wound up traveling trying to ex- discuss what the article was really about. And I was engaged in all these things, and she just wanted to take care of me. She wanted me mm-hmm. to move in, <laughs> and she wanted to cook for me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Mom, no, my, my, this is something I need to grow from. Because mm-hmm. her, her life, her love needs to be valued. And so I don't know if I'm going to go back to the way I was, Mm -hmm. but what I need to do is I need to be open to everything because I have to let my soul figure out which direction I need to go to. So that's such a good point that, that you mentioned that the people around us want us to just get, get through it. And, um, it is very funny, you know, move on or let go. 
if you think about the person, if we're talking about someone you love and you've lost that person, why would you ever want to let go or move on from that? Mm-hmm. You do want to carry the good stuff with you. Mm-hmm. And part of the grieving process is to let go of some of that, the, the pain of the journey and, and remember some of the beautiful things. Mm-hmm. I know it almost seems like it's more of an integration. You know, the first person I lost who was very close to me was my grandfather. And I felt very fortunate to live into my early 40s, you know, having not lost somebody very, very close. And I had wondered, you know, what it would be like because working in the hospital, I had been there so many times at the end of somebody's life and seen what it was like for the family and, of course, had lost, you know, distant relatives and things. But the moment um, it was my aunt who called me and told me over the phone my grandfather had passed, I remember feeling surprised that it felt like rather than somebody being gone, it felt like he was still with me, but in a different way. You know, like I, of course, was sad. I couldn't talk to him or see him, but it was interesting to me that it just felt like he was still with me, but in a different way. And I thought, well, of course, he's so much a part of who I am as a person that, you know, there's no way he would completely be gone because I am who I am much because of his influence in my life. Exactly. And I'm sure people that are listening to this, if they've just suffered a loss, that's very hard to accept because there's so much emotion. And what I'd love everyone to just listen to for one moment is everybody grieves differently. Mm -hmm. You're a unique person. So of course your grief is going to be unique. And I had a similar experience to you as well. Um, I also, you know, I, I was, I, I did things that were, were very crazy. I asked the hospital if I could be the one to bathe her body. And then, um, I asked the, um, the funeral home if I could put the coffin in the furnace because I felt I needed to be with her the whole time. But I also knew that what I was dealing with, if it was her body, you know, washing the body or putting it, the body in, in the furnace, that wasn't her. Mm-hmm. And that never was her, actually. Mm-hmm. Now, that came from a lot of spiritual work during, during her journey. But the, the love your grandfather gave you, the love someone gives us, the memories they give us, that one smile, I talk about this all the time. Um, my wife, towards, towards the end of her life, was, of course, really in bad shape, and she loved the beach. So mm-hmm. there was one day I said to her, you know, why don't we just take a car to Coney Island and get a hot dog and sit on the beach she used to love to put her feet, you know, in the, in the, in the, the surf. Mm-hmm. And so we went, we got the hot dog. She, she walked over, the water went up over her feet. I saw her smiling, like just, it was angelic. It was beautiful. She turned around, she came to me and she said, I need to go home. Mm. That, that moment passed in an instant, but that moment mm-hmm. of seeing her so happy is a choice to remember. Mm-hmm. Part part of the grieving process, and I think it's something that that we learn from, is we have we our brain is amazing, mm-hmm. and it is like a computer, but it doesn't have a file system. We actually learn from stories, and so we create relationships between things, and the grieving process can be to remember all the pain, losing that person, how they suffered. Or it could be remembering all the joy they brought into your life. And that opens up a source of energy that is, is part of, of resilience. It's, it's, it's part of resilience. A lot of people say, of course, it's bouncing back. And I always argue, why do you want to bounce back? Don't you want to bounce beyond? Don't you want to transform? And that does fuel that because all of a sudden you remember... Whoever you're caring for, if 
and I shouldn't say whoever you're caring for, but my, my, my example, my wife basically endured chemotherapy every week or every two weeks for nine years because there was some time when she was in remission mm-hmm. and she did that as much for herself as she did it for me because she loved me and she wanted to be with me and she wanted us to have a life. Mm-hmm. And I can look at chemo and think about how unfair it was that this woman had cancer, how, you know, how unfair that she was taken out of my life early and that she had to suffer. Or I can look at it as life is life, but wow, I, I had this person fight that hard to be in my life. Mm-hmm. Wow. How mm-hmm. can I not be joyful to remember her? And that's, I think, part of what grief teaches us is where, what do we want to focus on? Mm-hmm. What do we want to remember? Yeah, and that's so <clears throat> true that we do have a choice. And I think it changes as we grieve, you know, because at first it's going through the stages and being angry and maybe for some people, because you're right, it is so different for everybody, you know, having to go through the difficulties and there's so much, you know, I found working in the hospital and as a patient advocate for people who have long illnesses, the caregivers, it seems, are always second guessing what they did or what they should have done or what they could have done. And, you know, I tell people that, you know, taking a a fast from the word word should is a very good idea because, you know, you can um, constantly be thinking, well, if this or that, and people can really um, stay focused and fixated on that. And then they're missing, like you say, all the wonderful memories, which I think most highly honor, you know, the person that we love and that we've cared for. What one hundred percent? And um, I, I have, I love acronyms. So I have this acronym for grief, which sort of also touches on on the shoulds, because the shoulds, it's a big, it's a big part of everything. And again, a lot of the work when you're in grief is to I I had to grieve myself. Because Robert, the husband, Robert, the caregiver, died with Desiree. Mm-hmm. The, the Robert, who was supposed to be the investment banker living in New York with the doctor wife, living a yuppie lifestyle, died. Mm-hmm. That is it was it was gone. And I, I had to I had to grieve that. But what I realized is grief is grappling with guilt. Mm-hmm. It's rumination. It's understanding impermanence. It's letting go of expectations. And then it's facing fear. And so what you were just talking about in terms of rethinking, I, I should have done this, I could have done that. Desiree, if, if I mean, there, there were things that we probably could have done to give her more time, but I also, she was very clear on quality of life issues and she was the one that basically directed me saying you know um she the it goes like this where she never wanted to talk about death so she just turned to me one day and she said robert i'm tired and i said okay be be rest because i knew she was asking me to take away Mm -hmm. life-sustaining care but there were things we could have done but i also think before that and if i knew she was having because basically she she stopped having bowel movements. Um, mm-hmm. I was unaware of it. Now, if I knew that, I could have hidden a pill to, you know, loosen her stool because at the end she didn't even want to take pills. But, you know, and I, I went through that. I thought, mm-hmm. why didn't I notice that she couldn't go to the bathroom? Why didn't I think about putting a pill and this and that? But we can, we can only do our best. And it's very quick with hindsight to judge ourselves. But if our intention is to do our best every day, and you know what, our best sometimes might be 25%. We might be tired and cranky and not feel well. Other days our best might be 100%. Mm. But if our intention is pure, mm. we're the best caregiver we can, we can possibly be. The shoulds go away because it's not, we can never fix 
anyone. I, I dreamed about finding a cure or I don't know, I, I remember we were in France and I didn't know anything about Lourdes and we went to go visit on a bus trip and I saw people walking on their knees up and down this thing and I asked somebody, well, what are they doing? And they explained to me they're praying, you know, for someone to be healed. And yeah, I took my pants right off, you know, there I was in my underwear going up, going up the thing, you know, like Desiree, you never know, right? So, um, and, and, you know, but, and I can laugh at that now. And I can laugh at also how absurd that, that was. But when you're in it, you're so consumed by it. And that's why it's so it's so unfair to ourselves to judge anything being outside of it, because now we have a lot different clarity, different energy. There's more space. It, you know, we have more time to think. And now we can come up with different strategies. But again, it's it's the intention. Mm-hmm. And that's how you can stop yourself from ruminating over the shoulds. Mm hmm. That's so important. And you're right, it, it shifts the perspective right away. If, you know, people can say, okay, what, what was my intention all along? And I think another thing that gets forgotten, you know, when caregivers are past it and judging themselves, is they tend, because I've, you know, had my clients who are caregivers talk about this with me, and I was there and knew the, the person they were caring for, and they would very often forget that person had their own will and ideas as well. So sometimes I would have to remind them when they say, I should have this or I should have that, that I would remind them and say, but remember, they didn't want that at all. You know? That, and they that is so great. That is so great you brought that up because it is so tr- Like even towards the end of my wife's life, we argued a lot because she didn't want to be married to a parent. Mm-hmm. And... I realized, like, she she was perfectly. Now, maybe somebody has dementia or other things where we might not think they are capable of making their own decisions and so forth. So all types of caregiving is are they're all different, mm-hmm. but they are still people. They they do have a will, like you said. There there are things and their own expectations and like i said my wife we probably could have taken out some of her intestines and put you know the bag so she could go to the bathroom in the bag and her body had been pushed so hard for so many years how much more chemo could she have possibly taken anyway so she was very clear she was very great on defining that but that's that's such a good point that the more we care give the more we take responsibility for that person's life. And it's very hard to not step over the boundary of taking away someone's freedoms. Mm-hmm. And their freedom is their freedom just to just to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and I think that goes to, you know, the whole, our, our culture and our way we, we manage end of life and death, you know, thinking, of just extending life period that's the goal and many times with you know my clients and and their families and granted I may agree you know no it's not safe for this person to be alone you're right everybody we bring here um, to sit with them or be with them makes them outraged and they're calling you and they're calling everybody and they're so angry and they're so upset are you willing to accept the fact that they're okay if they might fall? They would rather do that than have somebody here all the time. Or, you know, they're okay if they're not getting organic food for every single meal. And, you know, forgetting that they have a will and they know what is important to them. Well, exactly. Exactly. You know, when, when my wife's cancer recurred, um, she had been depressed while she was in remission, but when it recurred, she felt a lot better because she didn't have to worry about it coming back anymore. I didn't realize that she had that fear. She had told me later on, um, but I became so hyper vigilant that 
I was like controlling all of her food. And one of the things, one of the most favorite things for her every year, uh, our wedding was in October. She was born in October, um, were when caramel apples first came out, you know, mm-hmm. seasonal, right? And it was just that little bit of joy. And I remember, oh, you can't have it. It's too much sugar. Cancer feeds on sugar. We can't, no, no, no. You have to stop eating these things. And she is like, but this is what life is about. And I remember that one, one argument of when it had returned of my wanting to control her food. Mm-hmm. And also, I think when I look back on my, my own journey, um, a lot of my wanting to control things as well is because I didn't want to make a mistake. I was so afraid of not doing 110 mm-hmm. percent that sometimes I forgot that, at least at the very beginning, that there was actually this woman that I loved in front of me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's funny because her being in palliative care and my experiences we learned that it's always people before patients. Mm-hmm. And I very quickly fell into, when it recurred, fell into that hypervigilant, okay, now it's all about, you know, you are the cancer. And <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not the way she wanted, that's not, of course, the way she wanted to live. Mm-hmm. But it was, my, it was my instinct. And that's also a very hard thing to surrender. And I... I use that word surrender. And even, you know, for, for me, I know most people have a negative connotation to that because I did at the beginning. But surrendering is that the end result is not where we need to focus. We need to focus on what's happening in the moments mm-hmm. because we, you know, look, there's a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that's out of our control. And the more we can let go of the things we can't control and the unnecessary, mm-hmm. more we have to, to care give. But what I found also through the grieving process is after Desiree had passed away, I viewed life or decisions in life. Everything was life and death. Mm-hmm. Every single decision, I was hyper vigilant about everything. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anymore how to make a normal decision. I thought about it 16,000 ways from Sunday. And I remember when I went back to work, my business partner had me sit in his office and he's like, I need to talk to you about something. He's like, nobody's dying here. Mm-hmm. We don't have to finish this project tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to rethink this project a hundred times. And it was such an eye opener because it became a habit. Mm-hmm. after the 11 years of being a caregiver. So part of the rebuilding process, and that's why it, it's definitely identity, we as caregivers, we also create habits mm. based on how we're dealing with life, dealing with the person we love, dealing with the medical system, dealing with food, dealing with frustration, that all of a sudden there's this high adrenaline level a lot of the times when we're confronted with certain things like you know the subway's late well okay i'm gonna get i'm gonna get to wait you know work a little later it's not Mm -hmm. that we have to get to a medical appointment Mm -hmm. but there's that tendency to be so stressed about it yeah because the experience of becoming a caregiver is so transformative that you know you get accustomed to like you say you're fighting all the time um so it's really hard to move away from that and it's so interesting that you know you brought that back with you to work and that your your boss and people around you had to say okay this isn't all life and death we can we can calm down a little bit and it's so much problem solving i find when you're caregiving and when I've been an advocate for other families caregiving, most of what I'm doing is handling all the logistics so the family members can just fully be family and maintain the relationships that they had as much as possible or as much as they want because there are so many logistics involved. So 
you know, combining, um, managing all of that, and especially when it is somebody's life dependent on it, it's really difficult to give that up, which I think is a good segue into how you did, you know, kind of move, um, find out, you know, who, who Robert is and what you liked to do and what you wanted to the life that you have now. Oh, sure. And great question. And, um, trying to, to summarize that is probably, um, (laughs) a challenge with time, but I would say, you know, part of the experience that, that, that I had mm-hmm. and, and watching someone fight for their life gave me an insight into just how precious life is. And we, I was, I was fortunate enough not to have had the anger which a lot of people have. And I think it's because I was also the one that carried all the medical knowledge, meaning that she didn't want to know the, the extent of her disease and everything else that I knew it was all, it was not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have the anger, but I had a lot of the lack of purpose. And what the biggest thing that I started doing is I started trying to gravitate towards, and these were those little things I talked about earlier, finding things that I liked, but gravitate towards what resonated with me from my new perspective. Because I went to Dubai because that was my safety zone as a child because um, I I grew up with with an alcoholic dad. And for me, money was always going to be the the ticket to freedom. So as soon as there was uncertainty, I was like, oh, I need to make sure I have money. But I I couldn't get back into that vibe anymore. So I started looking at who did I become as the caregiver? Not with any judgment of, now, I'm so angry that, you know, uh, I'm not that person anymore. But I started to create a profile. Okay, Robert learned X, Y, Z. Um, Robert had these experiences. I looked at it as more as I was, I was defining a character. Mm-hmm. And when I started to understand uh, what, what also made me very happy, like, I did volunteer in a chemotherapy center which people think are crazy because, you know, my, my wife had camp, but I just, I was so inspired by, by people that were confronting something so difficult. And it's, it's so sad because we have all heard this, that all of a sudden when someone's diagnosed with something, they understand the value of life. But to a certain extent, we're all on that same path. Um, and so we should just embrace life now. That's a segue. But so what I started understanding was, okay, what shifted? Because it's that whole thing of identity. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't the Wall Street guy anymore. I could feel it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know who I was. And the only way I could do that was to start to put the pieces together. And I, I journaled a lot. That, mm-hmm. That's one thing for sure. I journaled a lot. Um, if you're not a journaler, it helps to speak with somebody that you feel feel comfortable with. Uh, that's one of the things why caregiver support is very important because when you're a caregiver, you're speaking a language that maybe most of your friends don't know. You've learned medical terms and everything else, and it's it's hard to actually speak to them about that. And then when you have lost somebody, when you're grieving, you're also speaking about certain things other people might not understand, and you don't want to hear that well, don't worry, you'll get over it or you'll find somebody new. Or so if you're not a, if you're not a journaler, maybe it's, you know, being part of, of a community where you can speak these things through. But the key for me was identity. I had to understand who I became Mm -hmm. during the caregiving. And then I had to understand who do I want to become? And that's the, that's the very big leap. And when I mentioned grief before and I said the F was fear, because 
what are we doing when we want to try to figure out who we're going to become, who we could become? We're stepping into unknown, and that's what made us so uncomfortable being a caregiver because it was all unknown. Mm-hmm. And so we resist it. But the only way to really rebuild our lives is to say, what, what's my new, what identity did I have? What new skills? What do I want to keep? What do I want to let go? And for me, it was very methodical, but I actually do this with, with my clients as well. And we wind up writing basically different characters of a book. You know, mm. so we've written who they were um, before the, the diagnosis or before the caregiving event, who they were during the caregiver event, who they feel they are now, what's right, what's wrong, what do they want to bring forward. That's what led me also to change my whole career. Now, I will say I, um, I went through an extremely reckless period after, after Desiree passed away. I'm perfectly honest about that, that I went through, oh, life is short. And I really believed I was going to be one of those spouses that died <laughs> you know, after they lost their significant other. And mm-hmm. so I was making good money in Dubai and I wasn't saving it. And I was traveling all over and I was going to parties and, and it was just, you know, I was sort of waiting for life to just end. But mm-hmm. as I was spinning my wheels, um, more and more emotions were coming up because it's amazing how no matter how much distraction we throw in front of us, we have to confront the loss of identity. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. Mm-hmm. And so to be perfectly honest, I, I, I know this sounds strange from a, from a guy, but one of my wife's favorite books was Eat, Pray, Love. Mm-hmm. And I went to go see the movie in Dubai. I hadn't read the book, but um, and she spent her last birthday, her 40th birthday. We spent it in Rome and India, which are the, also the first mm-hmm. two scenes. Mm-hmm. And I cried the whole time, but I cried not because of her not being in my life anymore. And I, I, my eyes are getting teary now. I could just tell you. Um, I cried because I was remembering who I was with her and I wasn't that person anymore. I wasn't Mm -hmm. acting that way anymore. I was this, you know, the guy going to parties and all that other stuff. And I sat down and I just started doing that work. And I said to myself, I want to be a person that takes chances. I want to be a person that's not a fear, not afraid of moving forward. I've always wanted to live in Italy because I have Italian blood Mm-hmm. Life is meant to be lived, not watched. So I'm going to take this chance. Now, of course, people listening to it, they, they think, well, that's easy for that. And first of all, let me just say that, again, grief is different. We're all unique. My life transformation doesn't mean that everyone should go and move to a different country. Transformation talk is more about looking at life differently. But I showed up in Rome with two suitcases and I started teaching English for $8 an hour. I didn't have savings, I didn't, but I wanted to make it work. And I also decided to become a life coach because before Desiree had passed away, before she was diagnosed actually, she and I had made a pact because I had realized that I had pursued finance due to anger because of my dad. And it wasn't something that was a true passion. So we had talked about me going back to school and and all of that. Of course, it didn't happen because she was diagnosed and didn't make sense to leave a good paying job to go back to school. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we talked about at that time was maybe me going into psychology because life coaching really Mm -hmm. wasn't a big thing. But Mm -hmm. I said to myself, you know what? I need to learn Italian. And so I'm going to go to life coaching school. I'm going to do it in Italian going to force myself to learn Italian and life coaching was also going to teach me things about how to confront things. Interestingly, I learned that part of that whole experience was because I was hoping to create a different identity than the one that had the pain. I was now going to be Mm. a, have a new citizenship, a new language, a new life. 
And so I'm not necessarily going to be that person with the pain anymore. And Mm -hmm. that pain was attached to the expectations. It was amazing to me. Um, Brene Brown calls them stealth expectations. But it was amazing to me when I looked deep down, I kept carrying that shit, but I shouldn't be, I didn't know it at the time, but I shouldn't be living in Italy. I should be in New York in the, in the, with the great view and, you know, all, all of those things. And I had to continually return to that character or that dossier that I, I wrote about who I wanted to become and what I was carrying with me. And mm-hmm. that's what really led me to transform everything. Wow, that's such an important, I think an exercise that could be so valuable for everyone because, you know, and you can't, it's so interesting that you talk about, you know, wanting to become a person that doesn't carry the pain, you know, and leaving that behind. And I think, you know, we all do that in some fashion. I think it's human nature when we encounter anything uncomfortable. But like you said, you know, those, those kinds of things you can't completely ignore and the transformations taking place, uh, and the grief and the pain are, are a part of that getting you to the new person that you're becoming. Exactly. Exactly. And that whole idea of, of hiding from the pain, it was, which we talked about earlier, uh, in the podcast here is that once I realized that I had the choice of remembering the pain or remembering the joy, because I will tell you, my wife and I lived a life full of joy and full of laughter and, and giggles and tickles and kisses. And just, I look back on it and I, now because I've chosen to look at that and I don't look at it through the lens of it's unfair. I don't have it. Mm -hmm. I, because we, we create the narrative of of everything. There is no, there is no rule. We're not given a book when we're born saying, this is what you're supposed to feel when you lose something. No, we pick it up from everything around us. Right. Mm -hmm. But I was able to change the narrative and, and not be, Oh, it's not right not fair that I don't have it anymore to how amazing that I had it. And it's given me the ability to transmit that because every time I talk to a client and talking to you, I'm connected to Desiree. I, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't do this without that. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we go back to, she's with me, but in a different way. And I know a lot of people, I was one of those people that if I heard that when, when, you know, I was suffering, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. You know, that's just something mm-hmm. that, you know, <laughs> the wacko people say, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that are, um, you know, smoking something. But uh, it, it is true that we all will, that's the idea of the, the I when I said in grief is impermanence. Mm-hmm. Everything changes. And one of the reasons why that exercise is so important is because we tend to not see we're changing or we don't want to change, but we have to evolve. It just is a natural process. And it's, I'm not just talking about our skin getting more wrinkled. Mm-hmm. It's wisdom. Everything that happens in our lives is creating thoughts. And, and thoughts create new neural pathways and everything else. And so we, we, can, we can be active in that. And... Um, if I could just say one thing, because it, it keeps popping in my head and mm-hmm. it's something that I'm not, I'm not religious, but I am very spiritual, but I always think about the line, um, Psalm 23 that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow mm-hmm. of death, mm-hmm. um, the thing is the key in that phrase is to walk through mm. the, the thing about life is moving forward, living life forward. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you forget the person you've lost or you or or whatever you've lost. It doesn't mean that you will not have the pain anymore. Mm-hmm. But it means this has become part of your new identity, your new tapestry. 
And so how are you going to use it? I, I love the th- idea of wielding a weapon, though, even though, you know, uh, I'm not condoning it's this is something that we're talking about aggression here. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, think of think of a, of a, of a machete and you're clearing your path. Mm-hmm. And so all these things are part of that. And it's not it's not an easy process. And I have found myself a lot of times missing it's not anger but it's it's missing it's a longing and that's part of of human nature i believe mm-hmm. but what i choose to do is say yeah i really do and i i tend to speak to her but i i say i really do miss you i really really do um but i know i can't stay in the missing Mm-hmm. because then I'm not valuing life. Mm. And that's exactly what these people, they, uh, when we're caregivers, they're fighting for, the, for extra time. And I need to value the, the time I've been given. Mm. Well, and when you talk about, because I've had, <clears throat> you know, the, the honor of being able to read uh, your, your amazing, amazing book, and when you say, you know, that you and Desiree had so many, you know, wonderful experiences and the way that you described your life, that is absolutely what comes through in the book. And I was, I mean, while certainly it's sad and um, because, you know, Desiree is no longer here and your love for each other is, is so clear and apparent, I was mostly left with what a beautiful testament to living life, you know, through that fear and those challenges. And, you know, Desiree, what I got from the book, just was never failing in that, you know, not getting stuck and stuck in, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen if and I'm angry and which I'm sure she was probably all of those things. But my goodness, how fully you lived life is just incredibly inspiring. Oh, that's uh, that that is so so sweet, and you gave you gave me goosebumps. Um, but one, I'm very happy that that um, you, you did take a look at the book, and you know the she did have all those things. Of course, she did, you know, cry on my shoulder saying, "Robert, you need to leave me because this isn't this isn't fair." Um, we did have the what ifs very very minor what ifs um, because she wouldn't necessarily allow herself to go there but I think because we learned to focus on the moment and we learned to pepper in moments of joy that that wasn't there was no space as much for that type of thinking but it was more for really enjoying life. For, for example, I, I, it's not in the book, but I used to buy all these weird, crazy colored napkins with all kinds of designs or, or like hearts or dogs or flowers, whatever. And we would call them happy napkins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happy napkin were we going to have for dinner tonight? And stupid little things like that. And people listening to this, they're like, this guy is really crazy. <laughs> but it was, why not play, mm-hmm. you know? yes, what she was going through was serious, what we were confronting was serious, but why not also play? When she had her stem cell transplant um, and she was in the the hospital for 20-something days, we played shoots and ladders and we played, you know, the game of life and um, we were just like two little kids and we watched cartoons and because in the end we said, why not why not play the game of life the way we want? Mm-hmm. And um, you, you know the title of the, the book, which is not out yet, but the, the title of the book is called Chasing Life. Mm-hmm. And it's not about time. That's the oxymoron. It is about living it, savoring it, filling, filling your moments, chasing life to have those moments that are full of 
even chi childish stupidity at times. I can't mm -hmm. tell you how many times my wife watched Friends, by the way, and she <laughs> laughed at every episode. It could have been the hundredth time she saw that episode, mm -hmm. and she laughed like a like a little kid. And and why not? You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was. I mean, because I will tell you, I was tearful during that book. But I mean, I, the in this. I mean, maybe to some people, but people that really know you, it was a life that people envy. And that would seem crazy for some to say, and maybe to you, because my goodness, you know, your wife was diagnosed with breast cancer um, so early, and you had that battle. But the, the gift of understanding how valuable life is, and really being able to live it to me was just so inspiring and something to aim for just for everybody living life and even you know going through difficult times uh, I, that's that's what i i really hope more than anything else and just to to tie this all back to grief and moving through grief and everything else what what you just talked about is the fact that if we stay, and, and it's that walking through the, the valley, right, the walking, if we stay marred in grief, we are not at all valuing, acknowledging what was so short for somebody else that we cared about. Mm -hmm. And that has a big impact on rebuilding because part part of resilience is not about it's not about fighting back and it's not about being super strong it's about moving forward with the pain and saying i am i'm willing to endure this i want to see what i'm capable of because on the other side i'm going to build something beautiful now as i say that just because i i I'm still very connected to some things that I, if I heard them uh, with Desiree, a lot of times, you know, the idea of, oh, a beautiful life, how can I have a beautiful life without that person? Or I don't ever want to get married again, or, you know, all these types of things. The, the concept of a beautiful life, in my opinion, is allowing yourself to express who you are without resistance. And so when you are in the grieving process and there's all this anger and frustration and you're angry at life and expectations are haven't been met up and you're in the shoulds, there's a lot of resistance. And to me, what I, what I always mean about a, a beautiful life is being able to be grounded in who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's possible for each and every person. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's that's so wonderful and you're right i mean moving through grief or you know any time in life being able to fully show up as yourself and not be afraid of not being accepted or not succeeding is is the key really to not having fear and to being happy so well, thank you so much, Robert. And I want to make sure that you share information with, you know, if any of our listeners um, want to contact you for life coaching and all the other amazing things you're doing, how they can do that. Sure. Well, thank you very much. And first, let me say this. It is a pleasure speaking to you. It, it just I, I so enjoy um, this is the second time and I, I so enjoy what you're doing and the the way you run the podcasts and getting down to like the, the, the key points. It's just, it's wonderful. It really is. So thank you. Mm -hmm. And um, as for the best place would be to go to robertparty.com. Mm -hmm. um, and if you go to like the contact page, then there's my LinkedIn, there's my, my tiny little podcast. I do a tiny podcast called possibility in action because that's, I believe we should all have a hashtag. Mm -hmm. We should all, create a hashtag for our lives. So mine is possibility in action. And um, it's literally three minutes. I just have an idea and I talk about it for three minutes. But mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I would say robertparty.com is the best. Okay, wonderful. And 
um, when the book is out or people can pre-order, I'd love to have you back to talk about the book because, I mean, it really is amazing. And it's it's quite a journey in getting to know Desiree, who was such a remarkable, remarkable woman. I mean, as somebody you know, who's been diagnosed with cancer. And, and I could relate a lot to um, some of the things she did and said and what she was going through. But there were so many things that I learned and that are so inspiring, you know, to me. So I, I highly recommend it and would love to have you back to talk about the book when when people can buy it. Oh, that would be an honor. That would be fantastic. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much again, Robert, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Take care, everybody. Thank you very much.